All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this tremendous honor of gathering together as family in a unity that is provided by faith, the faith that you've given each of us a measure of by your divine will, by grace, of course. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for the truth that sets us free and even though sometimes it can sting, Father, we know that it's for our own good. Uh, thank you for your patience with us as we continue to digest it and absorb it and, of course, be set free by it. For that is your will in our lives, that and to spread the good news about our Lord and Savior, your Son. Father, we pray for those that desire to be here with us this morning but can't be for one reason or another, and we also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that desperately need a Savior and apparently don't realize it yet, or maybe they do and they're too arrogant. We ask that you humble them, bring them to their knees, Father, whatever necessary, because we'd love to evangelize them and be a part of your good plan in doing so. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for all of us to enjoy. Father, we pray that your blessings be on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, God sees the heart. That's an absolute truth and holy scripture a profound truth, uh, which means that we really can't hide out, but the world sees the choices we make. The world doesn't see our heart necessarily, at least not the way uh, that God sees it so thoroughly and so purely. And so what that means and what we're going to get into really is um, on the coattails of these series about good names. Jesus Christ, as we learn, had a, has a perfect name. We don't. Uh, but we are called, as uh, Proverbs 22.1 would say, to have a good name. Why? Because the world sees us. The world recognizes us, even, by our name. And so, our last two message series titles were, There's Just Something About His Name, and A Good Name Is To Be More Desired Than Great Wealth. So, Obviously, the Spirit has turned our attention from the peaceful fruit of righteousness to good names because before those two series was that longer study on the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How's the temperature back there? Is it cold? Is that right? All right. So we've turned the corner from peaceful fruit of righteousness to good names. However, the objective as of late has been to connect these two concepts, the idea of peaceful fruit of righteousness to good names. And we need to connect these things in our souls. And just looking back, uh, if you recall, we spent a fair amount of time investigating what Holy Scripture has to say about how we find peace in the most practical ways in our lives. And for the sake of what I like to call cross-pollination. Uh, the Spirit had me open up the floor during the roundtable on Thursday evening. And if you're curious as to what that session was like, 
I essentially handed out a small piece of paper to everyone present, and I asked them to write down the answer to the following question. Share what the peaceful fruit of righteousness has meant in your life. That was the question. Uh, Share what the peaceful fruit of righteousness has meant in your life. And basically, I just collected them all, and we went through them anonymously uh, and shared amongst each other and used that sort of as food for thought to seed the conversation. And it was a wonderful conversation. It always is uh, whenever the Spirit does such a thing. But here are a few answers. I didn't want to uh, leave some of you out. Uh, Here are some of the answers to what's the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life? Love for others that don't love me. That was one that stood out. Having a love for others that don't love me. And this isn't me. This is the person speaking, obviously. Uh, And that's a very profound thing to say. Another one was this. Contentment as an expression or manifestation of peace has resulted from obedience to, trust in, and increased faithfulness to His Word. Contentment in all circumstances. Contentment as an expression of manifestation of peace has resulted from obedience to, that is the essence, if you would, of righteousness, being aligned or oriented to the holy God of the universe, that implies obedience. So from obedience comes these things, to trust in and increase faithfulness to His Word, contentment in all circumstances, in other words. Another one we shared was, I find great peace in knowing that if I unapologetically present and stand up for Christ, everyone involved in a situation is better for it, including the one that is offended, maybe. Not just the person who's standing up, but also the one who's offended. Also, we had this one. The peaceful fruit of righteousness transcends the burdens and pressures of the world. Transcends the burdens and the pressures of the world. In other words, there's relief in being righteous. There's peaceful fruit in obeying God. And then finally, I'll share this one with you. There is something to be said for having a clear conscience as a result of being obedient. There is something to be said for having a clear conscience as a result of being obedient. Because we know that the quickest way to lack of peace or sacrificing peace is to disobey the Lord, what we know to be true. Because even our own good conscience, by means of the Spirit, will haunt us. And that's um, very true what we see there up in the board. This is something to be said for having a clear conscience as a result of being obedient. So I do hope you, in sharing those things, I hope you find them encouraging. And it's interesting because it's really along the same lines as our previous in-depth study uh, from a few months back, which was titled, Why the Apostles So Encouraging? If you recall, the net-net of that series was that we can relate personally to them. Why were they so encouraging? Why were these people so encouraging? Why, when I share such things, some of you are going, yeah, yeah, why is that encouraging? It's the same reason that we learned about any person who's obedient to the Lord, like the apostles. And so the net-net of that was that we can personally relate to them. 
And the same goes for our beloved church family here at North Christian Church. We're able to relate to one another and we find encouragement along the way. And that is a tremendous blessing. So I want to say thank you to all those on Thursday evening who chose to uh, come and share. Uh, we closed out our previous series titled A Good Name is to be More uh, Desired Than Great Wealth by really thinking about the following. Again, I've already alluded to this this morning. I'll give you the amplified. Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name earned by honorable behavior, godly wisdom, moral courage, and personal integrity is more desirable than great riches and favor is better than silver and gold. Again, a good name earned by all these things is more desirable than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. It turns out that God is fully aware, duh, of the fact that while we stand before Him alone in judgment, we have the divine privilege of glorifying His good name by possessing a good name of our own. Again, He's our only judge. We're not doing these things because we're afraid of the condemnation that might come from others. We're trying to get the opportunity to show people who Christ is through ourselves as lights to the world. That is a divine privilege. And we want to have a good name. Why? Because it glorifies God. And that is our motivation. Not judgment, but rather the positive side. Being able to witness our lives even being a testimony of the grace of God. And what a privilege that is. But here's, I was thinking a lot about this because there's always, you know how it is, our flesh is just so slippery. And it likes to look for loopholes uh, and what have you. So here's where it gets... Um, a little dicey. It can get dicey when we start talking about such things. A good name, as this week's blog described, isn't what most people think it is. It's not what most people think it is. Even Christians. I would argue that if I was to interview most Christians, I think they would miss the mark as to what a good name was. It's not what most people, certainly not what the world thinks it is. So let me give you an example from Holy Scripture, just to sort of iron this out. Go to Luke 18.9. I want to give you an example of what a good name is. Luke 18, verse 9. We're going to go to Holy Scripture to get our answer, of course. Because I think it can get, and I think most people do not understand, they don't start from the right base even. A lot of people, you know, as the, as the uh, blog stated, you know, get sort of, hung up on being likable. Just because you're likable doesn't mean you have a good name. Luke 18.9 And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They presumed, in other words, they had a good name. So here's Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to tell you this parable. So he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They presumed they have a good name, in other words and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, 
swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He presumed to have a bad name, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then this is the crux of it. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you want to talk about a good name? What do you see in that parable? You want to talk about a good name? It's not about what the world thinks. Obviously, the Pharisee, as far as uh, street credibility and social standards went, had the highest name. But Jesus Christ despised such things. And if I'm going to be judged by anyone, it's going to be by my Creator, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So up here on the board, what we learn from such a parable is this. A good name is not established by world standards and then impressed upon the Holy God of the universe. I think a lot of people do that. They take some abstraction of what they see as good and then they impose it on God. Say, well, this is what I think is good, so therefore God must think it's good. Everyone around me seems to agree, so it must be good. I must have a good name because I'm a swell old chap. But a good name is not established by world standards and then impressed upon the holy God of the universe. Rather, a good name is held in high esteem by its owner in their heart where fruit becomes the evidence or is the evidence of its existence. A good name, to net it all out, begins with humility. And that's what Jesus just said. A good name begins with humility. The Pharisee was doing all the right things, right? Even by the law, the holy law, he was oriented, in a way, to it. But his heart was bad. He was a judgmental jackass. And then he had a humble individual, who obviously was a sinner. Tax collectors were thieves, remember? Uh, they were sort of considered lowly in society. But yet, he came before the Lord in complete humility, and that's the one who ended up going home justified. That's what a good name looks like. So that is a very big relief for a lot of people hearing my voice right now, I'm assuming. It's not about what you did in the past. You could be the worst possible person of all time in the past. But if you're humble before the Lord, He says, I will give you a good name. I will give you a name that you can stand by from here on out. Starting with my own. Being in Christ. So as we just noted in Luke 18, the world judges what is external, for that is all they can see. And just by the way, that's a limitation, isn't it? The world sees only what is external, because that's all they can see. And that, my friends, is a weakness. That is a weakness. A believer can, quote-unquote, see such things as weaknesses, but an unbeliever cannot, even when it is their own weakness in view. That's one of the problems. Even when it's their own weakness, they don't understand it because they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, as Christ would say. It's like telling a blind person that they have a big stain on their shirt. 
They may or may not believe you because they can't see the stain. However, if they trust you, they may take your advice and go get it out, wash it, what have you, if they trust you. But here's the point. What if you're horribly unstable? What if this blind person knows you by name, your name is associated with instability? So what if you're horribly unstable and this blind person knows through experience that nothing you say can be trusted? What if you're a perpetual liar or something like that? What if you cannot be trusted? What if you don't have a good name? Because remember what we saw in Proverbs 22.1 in the Amplified, that was personal integrity was in view. So what if you're unstable and this person knows that you can't be trusted? You get the point. Now, what do you think unbelievers think of believers who possess a bad name? In other words, their reputation... Um, even as a so-called Christian, is not so good. They might say to themselves, unbelievers might say to themselves, what's with this Christian person? They go to church faithfully, and yet I see them habitually and unabashedly doing ungodly things that even I know their God wouldn't be pleased with. This doesn't add up. They go to church faithfully, and then I see them doing all these things, and not even repentant, in other words. That's an unstable person, even from outside looking in. What the unbeliever sees in most so-called Christians nowadays is a, and no offense, a spiritual schizophrenic. A person with multiple personalities, even. They have one in church, and they put on their Sunday best. They come to church, they put on a good show, and then they go back to their life. And these are diametrically opposed things. And so if you're looking at that, a person from the outside looking in says, what is the deal? These people flip-flop between dual personalities, unstable confused about their own lives. James wrote it this way, James 1.8, being a double-minded, dipsukos, you remember, double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. If you're living two lives, in other words, you are what's called a dipsukos, and instability follows you everywhere. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon, or not even a believer, to see such a thing as instability. So ask yourselves, what person is going to trust such a person on things that really matter in this life? What person is going to trust that person? They may rightly say, I have more stability. I have a more stable, peaceful life than my Christian neighbor has. They're all over the map. I'm doing better. I don't even have to believe in Jesus Christ. What does that do for the progression of the gospel in your neighborhood? Not much. If anything, it probably damages it. 
And you might say, but, but I want to. Yeah, I know God sees your heart, but the rest of the world sees the choices you make. That's what the Spirit's saying. And that's why it's important that you have a good name. So this type of scenario speaks volumes to a person's name. Does the so-called schizophrenic Christian have to be this way? No, not at all. And that's why we come to church and learn the truth, to be set free from such things. If this is you I'm describing this morning, do you have to remain that way? No, that's the whole point. Again, back to our passage. Go to Luke 18, 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And then verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the point on the board. Up here on the board, a good name is not established by world standards and then impressed upon the holy God of the universe. Rather, a good name is held in high esteem by its owner. In their heart, where fruit is the evidence of, his, of its existence, to net it out again, a good name begins with humility. Jesus didn't pick on the tax collector, did he? He knew the guy was, as far as we know, was probably a crook. He, he knew that. But he didn't have any problem justifying that man over the self-righteous, judgmental Pharisee. Hmm. So here's where we get to the crux of this morning's message. I need you to concentrate because a lot of you, a lot of you, if you're honest, are going to be hit right here with a very short sentence I'm going to put up here on the board. And you need to be honest with yourselves. A good name is not an avatar. A good name is not an avatar. And I'll explain what an avatar is in a moment, if you don't know. In other words, we don't get to project something palatable to others and expect them not to see right through our little ruse. We don't get to project something palatable and then expect others not to see that we're phonies. That's not how we receive a good name. That's not how Jesus Christ deems a good name. See, the Pharisee was a phony, wasn't he? The tax collector was... <laughs> I'm wretched. This is who I am. At least I know it, right? Jesus said, good. That's a great place to start. See, the Pharisee was an avatar. He projected an image. A lot of you do the same thing. God created most of us with a sort of, let's call it a radar, for detecting insincerity and or pretension. Is that fair to say? In other words, are you able to see insincerity, phoniness, pretension? Of course you are. Most of you hate it. We, we do tend to hate the things we hate in ourselves, right? 
So this radar, if you would, includes, has been given to unbelievers as well. Who, by the way, often have their radar turned up full blast when around Christians. Oh, so you're a Christian, huh? Well, let's see about this up here on the board. The Christian avatar. Arrogance is always looking for a discrepancy between that which is projected and that which is true. Especially when it comes to God's children. Why? In the case of an unbeliever, it's, they literally live by a little thing in Romans 1 we could net out and call creature credit. A stratification based on worldly standards. So the first thing any arrogant person wants to do with you is cut you down. And when they can't do that, what do they say? You think you're better than me, right? Oh, you're all holy now, right? Oh, you're one of those. Huh? I see you carrying on. You think you're better than me now, don't you? That's their response. Why? Because they're insecure and the holy God of the universe is convicting them. And they don't like it. And so they, they throw stones at you. But they'll love you, even as a Christian. If you show up drunk to every party, if you're the jackass, if your fruit is terrible, in other words, if you show them bad choices that you make over and over again, they love you then because you're making it easy for them to discredit Christianity. So uh, arrogance is always looking for discrepancies between what a so-called Christian projects and what is actually true. Hmm. And just so you know, an avatar up here in the Oxford Dictionary, an incarnation, embodiment, or manifestation of a person or idea. An incarnation, embodiment, or manifestation of a person or idea. But here's the point. An avatar isn't real. It's not real. Most Christians that I've met, and this is very sad for me to say as a pastor, are not genuine. They're not real. They're an avatar. And on Sunday mornings, they are an avatar. They're Sunday best. They show up. They look the part. But as soon as they leave, they rip everything off, figuratively and literally, and go back to their life. And the true, the truth about themselves, that is what comes out after they take the avatar, the presentation, the projection off. But here's the point. An avatar isn't real. That's the key issue being brought to light here. And I'm telling you right now, everyone in here, including myself, has to think about this. Long and hard. So this is the key issue being brought to light here. And it's the same one that Jesus himself took issue with in Luke 18 with the parable of the two men. He said, you're an avatar. I don't like you. I don't like what you stand for. You're a phony. This guy, yeah, he's wretched. Look at him. He's a wretch, but he's honest. 
At least he's not a fake. At least he's not prancing around presuming a good name. You see? Jesus had a problem with this. This is why we're pausing on this. Because most Christians I've ever met are avatars. They project something. They say, no, that's close enough. It's close enough, thank you very much. I don't want you to see behind the curtain. Because then I would have to be open and honest, right? I'd have to reveal who I really am. Which of the two men did Jesus despise? The phony, of course. Hmm. So Jesus on avatars. Jesus despised phoniness, preferring to spend his time with humble, transparent, though flawed, by world standards and God's standards, but you know what I'm saying, individuals. He said, I'd rather spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes than an avatar. At least they say, yeah, probably not your favorite profession, huh, Jesus? Prostitution. But that's what I am. Hmm. Jesus despised phoniness, preferring to spend his time with humble, transparent, flawed individuals. Why? Because that is soil that receives the gospel truth. An avatar isn't real enough to receive the gospel. An avatar isn't real enough to receive the gospel. Up here on the board, you can't fake evangelize, or you can't evangelize a fake person because that person doesn't exist. You don't evangelize the embodiment of an idea or someone, to, someone is pretending to be somebody else. You don't evangelize that person. That's why it's so hard to evangelize a religious person because they're hell-bent on maintaining an avatar. And you go to evangelize them and, and you can't evangelize them because that's what they put forth. They say, you know, here I am and you're, and you're going like this. I just want to see around that thing. Can I see around that image you're projecting it's blinding can we actually can we actually see you because i can't see you i just see some projection that you want me to see i see something that you want me to see i get it you're insecure about it you lack courage i get it but it's hard for me to relate to you because i don't see you i see an avatar it's, it, it's not even you and i could be speaking to believers as well in many ways. I was thinking about this, as you can imagine, and I'm hoping you all take time to think about this on this rainy Sunday afternoon. Is there anything more frustrating than trying to give a person the gospel when they refuse to admit they are wretched? It's like you just throw your arms and be like, oh my word, I can't even, I'm not going to just say, oh, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't just say that because you'll just say, for what for? Or you might say, okay, okay, and give me some word lip service to get rid of me. We need to have a real conversation about why you need a Savior. You're totally wretched. Yeah, I know your little avatar is all shiny and bright, and everybody else seems to be okay with you putting that forward. 
But when I look behind it, even a little bit, I see glimpses of wretchedness. And that's what you need to see. So it's so frustrating to try to speak the truth, especially the gospel, to folks that refuse to admit that they're wretched. Because we're all wretched. That's the point. As we learned in massive detail not too long ago, this is why repentance is critical to the gospel message. We evangelize real people, not their avatars. We evangelize real people, not their avatars. We could spend all day in a dialogue with an avatar, with somebody who just is playing this game. No, 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 that's me. Ignore all the hints that it's not me. No, that's me. Don't look too deep, though. You might figure out that it's not me. The fundamental issue is that most people want to project what they want others to see, not what they actually are. Most people project what they want others to see, not what they actually are. While there is a thing called privacy, nonetheless, this is disingenuous and nothing more than a ruse. This is fundamentally disingenuous to project something that's not you. It's fundamentally disingenuous. And I can speak from personal experience, and I'm going to show you a little bit of my own soft underbelly here. I don't like when he makes me do this, but from time to time he does. This is throughout the course of my life. I'm 49 now. I know I, he probably thought I was 39, but... <laughs> so I can speak from personal 49 years, all joking aside. The greatest disappointments, my greatest heartaches, hands down, have always come at the hand of dishonesty. Always. Always. My greatest disappointments, my greatest heartaches, have always come at the hand of dishonesty. I have loved people deeply, only to find out later that I loved an avatar. Only to find out later I loved an avatar. I found out after it was too late that what I thought I knew to be true about a person wasn't actually so. So where does that leave the love? It's gone. It's vaporized when the avatar burned up. Here's some food for thought. This may take a little while to digest. Only the flesh can love an avatar. Flesh has no problem with loving avatars. Only the flesh can love an avatar. Let's reflect on this a little bit more. 
Jesus has an affinity for real people. Not so much for avatars. Jesus has an affinity for real people. Look at his 33 years on earth. Who did he actually choose to dine with? Wretched people? Yeah. But they were real. They were real. Avatars aren't real. While he understands that our natural desire is to project ourselves in the best light possible, what his spirit is trying to teach us right now is to let that notion go. Let it go. You are in bondage to maintaining an image. That is the essence of bondage. And it's a lot of work to maintain an image that isn't yours. There's a whole extra set of layers between you and your avatar. And there's a whole lot of work involved, even lying to others and to yourself about who you actually are. That's a lot of work. It takes up a lot of cycles, a lot of energy. And the funny thing is, turns out that Christ doesn't even want you to do it. He says, for freedom that I set you free. He said, yeah, I knew you personally when I died on the cross for all your sins. He goes, what are we doing? I didn't save your avatar. You don't have to try to be good enough. I didn't save you. I saved you, you wretched creature. With all the warts and the bumps and the ugliness. I'm just sharing here again. I don't like to do this, but part of my job. It's interesting that I'm teaching this because in multiple cases over the past few months, people have, for lack of a better term, come clean to me. Actually opened up and, and dropped an avatar or at least an element of who I thought they were, who I thought I loved even. And first off, I have to say that I am forever grateful for their trust. It doesn't matter what it was that they were projecting as avatars. The key point is that they dropped the charade. They dropped the charade. And you know what? In every case, I love them all the more. All the more. You see, that's how it works, my friends. You want Who here is going to raise their hand and say they don't want to be loved? Everyone. Do you want to be loved? Or do you want an avatar to be loved? Because there's no satisfaction in having and knowing that something that is loved, even though your name on, is on it, isn't you. Isn't it you that wants to be loved? Isn't it you that wants to be loved? Well, I can tell you from first-hand experience, when people drop the charade, when they let go of the avatar, and they show me the real them, I fall in love with them all the more. And I'm so very frustrated 
when I know they're lying. When I say, tell me about this, and they continue a lie. Do I beat them up over it? No. I probably, on some occasions, go home and weep. Because I look at that as bondage. And I say, this person, God loved them, is still in bondage. And I'll pray for them. I'll pray for their deliverance. And then I'll enjoy every bit of it when they come clean. So it's an interesting thing that happens. Um, Love, real love, true love flourishes when people stop projecting avatars. Isn't that what Jesus shared about His own heart? Up here on the board, being honest with ourselves, time and again, Jesus told parables about humility and transparency with those who desire to love us especially. Be honest. You want to be loved? Then be honest. You want somebody to say to you and you want to believe it. You want to hear the words, I love you? The whole thing is a facade unless you've actually given them you. That's the problem. And this all starts with God, of course. If you're not real with God, what about salvation even? Is he interested in saving an avatar? No, he's not. That's why Jesus said, get away from me. I never knew you. But didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? That was your avatar. That was something you projected. And I'm not, I don't buy the lie, see, because I see your heart. I don't save avatars because they're not real. I save real people. And when you're ready to be real with me, then we can talk. That's how relationships work. So time and again, Jesus told parables about humility and transparency with those who desire to love us especially, starting with God, of course. Luke 18, 9-14, Matthew 21, 28-32. I suppose it's fair to say that none of us like the idea of being lied to by others about the one thing that really matters most, which is their person, right? I don't want to know about what you think I should know about you. I don't want an avatar. I want you. I all, all right, so here's a, here's a very newsflash. Everybody knows you're wretched. The fact that you're playing this charade proves it. Everybody already knows. The secret's out. So what are you doing? I just want you to love me. I would if you let me. I really would. Give me a chance. And I'm not saying do this to someone on the street. You know what I'm saying. Give me a chance then. If I blow it, then it's on me. And you can rest assured that it's on me. But don't ask me to love your avatar. Remember the first time you saw The Wizard of Oz? I'm going to assume everybody in here has seen it. Remember how fearful people were of this so-called all-powerful wizard? Remember he was like, I am Oz. Remember? 
the big green bulbous head. Looked like mine a little bit, so more veiny and green, of course. <laughs> People were scared They're wit out of their wits of this avatar. Remember your reaction when Toto pulled the curtain back, revealing the so-called great wizard was nothing more than an avatar? And the question on the table is, are you like the wizard? Are you? Are you like the wizard? Do you have knobs and wheels and smoke screens you use to project something better than what you really are? Do you remember the wizard's confession? And do you also remember that Dorothy and the others actually became friends with the wizard in the end? Once the air was cleared of the avatar, they were actually friends. Don't you remember? Imagine that. I think that's the point of this morning's lesson. While we don't have to tell everyone our deepest, darkest secrets, we can at least be real. We can at least be real. And if we don't have the courage to do that, then we ought to just not say anything. If you don't have the courage to reveal to someone that you're this way, just don't say anything then. Don't put something out front and say, oh no, I'm this way. And it really isn't you. That's how an avatar comes into being. And you're asking the rest of the world to love something that isn't real, or at least not completely genuine. Hmm. So if we don't have the courage, we ought just not say anything. For example, if you're not so good in one area of your life, then don't pretend you are. Do as I often have learned to do. You ready? Newsflash, nothing. Do nothing. Another newsflash, you ready? You're not perfect. If someone can't love you because you're not perfect, then what the, he what the heck you want to even be around that person for anyways? They obviously have bigger problems. Up here on the board, no more avatars. Here's a good thing to think about this weekend. Not every request for intimacy requires a response. Someone ever asks you, hey, what do you think about this? Or... What's your experience in this? And you're like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. You're better off saying, I'd rather, not I'd rather not say than make something up that's not true. Not every request for intimacy requires a response. If you don't yet have the courage to share the truth, then don't make something more palatable up that is fake. You're better off projecting nothing than something untrue. And you know what? People will respect you for it. I'd rather stand before a person who says, you know what, I'm not comfortable telling you that just yet, maybe someday, than knowing they are lying to my face. 
Because now I have to adjust. You see? I have to adjust. I have to compensate with my own love towards that person. And now there's something fake between us. And it, uh, it's actually detrimental, not helpful. But if you say, you know what? Kind of screw up in that area of my life. Someday I'll tell you about it, right? I promise. I respect you for it. At least you're real. At least I can still love you. Not some avatar. Some more food for thought. If you really feel the need to share, then do as some of the most respected people in our lives do. Share the ugly truth about yourself. Really, if you say, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm ready, I want to share something. And by the way, this is completely analogous to the Lord in being saved. I hope you see this. Because there comes a point where you share the ugly truth about yourself and you succumb to it and you say, I'm ready, I, I, I need a Savior. Just saying. But if you are in a relationship, and I'm not talking about romantic even, I would argue that the greatest, even the Bible I believe says this, the greatest relationships to ever occur are between friends, not lovers. Although lovers can still be best friends. If you really feel the need to share, then do as some of the most respected people in our lives do. Share the ugly truth about yourself. But I don't want them to think any less of me. Oh, so you want them to love an avatar. You'd rather be loved for something you're not and betray a person that way than actually have the honesty to share what's actually going on in that sick head of yours. (laughs) You don't trust that person very much, do you? Isn't that what you're saying? I don't trust you with me. That's what you're saying. I don't trust you with me. So I won't share me with you. I'll share something that I want you to think I am. I can only speak for true believers in Christ here, but I believe that such sharing builds trust and ultimately love in others. My favorite thing about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that I can be totally honest with Him. I can have the most candid conversations. Hey Lord, did you see that thought I just had? Of course He says yes every time, but you know what I mean. I can't believe I just had that thought. It's, it's disgusting, right? Yep. But I love you. Thanks for coming to terms with it. Hey Lord, did you see that? That thing I just did? Of course I did. It's pretty ugly, huh? Yep. Thanks for allowing me to trust you with everything. Thanks for telling me you knew about everything that's been ever ugly in my life and you still chose to save me. Thanks for reminding me. Thanks for giving me freedom and peace in knowing these things. Why do you think so many people are in bondage in relationships? I believe people get married 
Two avatars get married. And they're both insecure and they fight all the time. Why? Because they're not actually themselves. And slowly and surely, but surely, even without their permission, the other person starts to see the ugliness that was there all along. And the dishonesty comes out. You lied to me. You're not the person I married. Well, neither are you. Maybe we should have been honest from the get-go, huh? Yeah. That would have worked a lot better. I could have trusted you more. I could have loved you more. I, for one, would rather know you than your avatar. So did Jesus. <laughs> he didn't care about the tithes or the fulfilling of the so-called law, which was perverted anyways. He said, I just want to be with real people because I can deal with them. I just want to be around real people so I can love them, not some avatar. So I don't know about you, but I'd rather know you than your avatar. Sometimes I think that's why I have so few friends, because I think people know that about me. Maybe that's the same with you. Maybe people know that you want to know who they are, not some BS front. Newsflash, we already know you're a wretched pervert. So quit pretending. <laughs> we already know. I don't need to see behind the curtain to already know. Because the Holy Bible tells me so. So... We already know. And you know who knows far more than anyone else about you? God. Hence our message titled, God Sees the Heart, but the world sees the choices we make. We haven't really gotten to the second part yet. Not in fullness anyways, but we will. We just need to iron out a few details front and center first. So let's go back to our first point up here on the board. Being honest about ourselves. Time and again, Jesus told parables about humility and transparency with those who desire to love us, especially, starting with God, of course. Okay, we've seen the first passage. Let's go to the second reference now. Go to Matthew 21, 28. Matthew 21, 28. Matthew 21, 28. <clears throat> but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. But John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collector and the prostitutes 
did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Jesus was saying, in essence, that an honest, repentant prostitute has always had a better chance of being saved by God than a self-righteous avatar of a person. You're better off being a prostitute but being honest than a self-righteous avatar of a person. Think of the design of salvation. Think of what it means. The God of the universe wants to love you. Not your avatar. So doesn't it make perfect sense that He wants to save you and not some projection of you? Doesn't it make sense that He says, I want you, I want you for all of eternity, not your avatar. I want to love you. I will save you if you can come to terms with being real with me first, which is going to imply repentance, etc. That's our meeting place, if you would. That's where God meets the repentant sinner. Not at their avatar. A person who isn't playing some game of projection is the one who comes to terms with their wretchedness. And after that comes the tremendous freedom of knowing that God saved a wretch like you. Whenever I say that phrase, all I can think about is John Newton's Amazing Grace up here on the board. First stanza, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I know you already know this, but the Spirit's just trying to give you sight to see. He's saying that a good name isn't something we earn by cultivating an avatar. A good name isn't something we earn by cultivating an avatar. A good name is something real, like its owner. The Pharisees had good names by social standards, but Jesus despised them. The crux of the issue was simple. The Pharisees were dishonest about themselves, preferring to project something righteous than accept a righteousness in Christ. Let me summarize up here on the board. The Pharisaical avatar type We mimic the Pharisees when we project ourselves righteous in ways that we aren't. Our righteousness comes through Christ, imputed, imparted by grace. We ruin the purity of grace when we lie about our wretchedness to others. We ruin the purity of grace when we lie about our wretchedness to others. God didn't have to take me that far. I know that person over there, you know, they were really wretched. So God had to do a lot of work with them. Me, I was like this close to heaven already. Okay, you were really way to heck down here, right? Wouldn't it be a lot more to talk about grace if you said, I was really way down here. And look how far. That's grace. No, I'm going to say I was this close. And it was only A little pushover. We may make the Pharisees when we do that. We play these games. We ruin the purity of grace 
Go to Matthew 23, 27. Jesus had something to say about that. Surprise, surprise. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember, hypocrite in the Greek, wearing a mask. What do you think an avatar is? It's a mask. It's a hypocrite. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, before we close, why all this pre-work on good names before we even get to the concept of choices? Well, it's because of the following up here on the board. It's true, the world sees our choices. If our choices are inconsistent with our projected names, the arrogance in others will sniff it out and use it to discredit the very name we represent, Christ. If our choices are inconsistent with our projected names, the arrogance in others will sniff it out and use it to discredit the very name we represent, which is Christ. Go to Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5.1. We're trying to advance the name of Christ, not destroy it. Right? Not discredit it. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean any of that. Just means we're honest. Means we're open. If we can't share ourselves, then don't share yourself at all. Don't make something up about yourself. Does God do that? Nope. God says, here I am. Jesus Christ said, here I am. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And I like that phrase, as beloved children, up here on the board. It made me think about par- uh, parenting. Parents often tell their children to behave in public because it's their good name at stake. I mean, think about it. If you've got like a bratty kid, oh, it's a nightmare. A disrespectful, unruly, naughty brat reflects poorly on the parents. That's why I'm like, hey, kid, stop it. Stop being that way. You're making mom and dad look bad. Stop it. (laughs) Well, we have a father in heaven. Where are his children? He's like, cut it out. I see you got your uh, Jesus shirt on. Oh, no, better yet, you you got a cross tattooed on your shoulder or a Jesus fish on your back or your ankle or something like that. And I see you wearing all these... Christian paraphernalia. What are you doing? Why are you judging that person right there? Why are you a phony? Why am I able to see right around the facade? Why are you an avatar? Why are you so pretentious? Do you, is it true? Do you really think you're better than me? Is that where they get this stuff from? Maybe, just maybe. We don't help the cause. Hmm. Verse 2. Walk in what? Love. You can say it. Walk in what? 
love. There you go. Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, our key point up here on the board. The world sees our choices. If our choices are inconsistent with our projected names, the arrogance in others will sniff it out and use it to discredit the very name we represent, Christ. Verse 11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Even, you ready? Even if it, the, exposing them is in your own life. Even if it's in your own life. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The unfruitful deeds of darkness is a concept. And you might be, in the, might be headlong in the middle of it. <laughs> and say, the unfruitful deeds of darkness are evident in my own life. But it's so weird because your avatar looks so pristine. I know I'm a liar. I'm a phony. God knows it, but you all don't know it. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Verse 17, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then Paul turns to specifics that we've recently covered in some detail, in particular, the value of a good name in the family structure. The value of a good name in a family structure. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. If your husband says, please be honest with me, be honest with them, ladies. Husbands, love your wives. That means you be honest with them. Just as Christ also loved the church. Was Christ not honest with us? Is Christ not honest with us? 
you bet, be honest with your wives, and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Again, and I'll close with this. If our choices are inconsistent with our projected names, the arrogance in others will sniff it out and use it to discredit the very name we, we represent. And as our title goes, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. I'll just close with one more key principle from our previous lesson. A truly good name is always a function of faith. We'll continue on Tuesday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study your word here this morning. Thank you for making our lives transparent before you. Thank you for letting us and letting us know that you see it all and that even the world sees the choices we make and that we represent your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for humbling us. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.